Hello and welcome to this week's podcast from journalism.co.uk. In this week's episode, we're giving you the opportunity to hear our keynote speech from our last News Rewired conference, which took place at Reuters on the 8th of February. The opening session, titled From Fake News to Misidentifying Suspects, Best Practices for Tackling the Misinformation Ecosystem, saw Claire Wardle, who leads strategy and research at First Draft, consider the whole spectrum of the misinformation ecosystem and use research about audience behaviour and social psychology to outline ways that newsrooms can start tackling the issues associated with fake news, hoaxes, misattributed and manipulated content that surfaces online. First draft started about a year and a half ago. It was a coalition of nine organisations, including Storyful, Reportedly and Google News Labs. It focuses on user-generated content and the verification of that content, looking at the ethical and legal considerations of how it can be found, shared and often misattributed or manipulated. Indeed, in its own words, the company is dedicated to improving skills and standards in the reporting and sharing of information that emerges online. Claire Wardle and her team at First Draft have been discussing the misinformation ecosystem since the company began, but it was only during last year's US election that people really started paying attention to the issue and thinking about how it can affect their newsroom and the industry. But what exactly is fake news and how do we define the many different types of content within this ecosystem? Here's Claire. We are in an information war. I'm not even just going to talk about misinformation, I'm going to talk about disinformation. And I am pleased that the election shone a spotlight on what's happening, but we need to wake up to recognise the severity of this. And this is no longer journalists sometimes running YouTube videos that have been unsubstantiated or are old footage. We're past the point of just having to worry about sometimes uh, journalists tweeting out old photos. This is a much bigger issue now. We're talking about systematised campaigns to influence public opinion. And journalists and newsrooms are part of that ecosystem. And so what do we need to think about? How do we respond to this? And how do we absolutely see the, the scale of this problem and resource this properly? And the key aspect to this is how do we collaborate? This is no longer a time when newsrooms can individually fight on, on this level. We need to be collaborating and absolutely understand the problem and decide how we're going to work together. Hooray! It's not a dress for doing that. Okay. <laughs> So, beyond fake news, tackling the mis- and disinformation ecosystem. So, for those of you who have not visited our website, if you have anything to do with training in your newsrooms, please visit the site, click on the resources tab. We have all sorts of short videos. Recently, an old video of ours, which is 30 seconds long, was retweeted saying, journalists, don't share photos from Aleppo unless you've watched this 30-second video. This simply talks about Google reverse image search. And we had journalists from around the world. This is amazing. I didn't know this existed. So please encourage your journalists to go and take a look at this. And I reference a number of things in this talk, um, and I've actually put together a reading list on First Draft News where you can go back. There's been some incredible articles, even the last two weeks. I keep updating the reading list. Uh, so please go there if I say something, and you're like, oh, I want more on that because I only have 20 minutes. Okay, so the difference between mis- and disinformation. Misinformation, information that's false, but the person who's disseminating it believes that it is true. And we have big issues with... Well-meaning people circulating content they don't realise is false. 
Disinformation, as we well know, is information that's false and the person who is disseminating it knows it is false. It is a deliberate, intentional lie. Now, we could go down the rabbit hole of our Wall Street Journal and NPR correct to not call Donald Trump a liar. Let's do that over coffee and vodka. It's a big issue. It's a big issue for journalism to grapple with. But this is, it's not just Trump that is uh, thinking about disinformation. This is a global problem. Um, so in terms of the recent debates about fake news, yes, fake news has been discussed for a long time. We've talked about it. But when you actually look at Google Trends, how much has this resonated with uh, people in general? When, who, when have they been searching for fake news? And they weren't searching at all until the election, and they started searching. And then they really searched a lot on the 10th of January. What was that? We won't watch the video, but yes, this moment when he specifically called out CNN and said, you're fake news. And what I kind of love is that people are like, hmm, fake news, you say, Donald Trump. Let me search Google for what that is. Uh, and, you know, they clearly wanted to understand why he was calling CNN fake news. Um, and I think we know why. So in terms of the types, motivations and dissemination strategies, we know the term fake news is pointless. Margaret Sullivan wrote a very good piece on the 8th of January, we should stop using it. Part of the problem is we haven't got an alternative term, so we all keep using bunny ears at conferences saying, oh, fake news, I know I shouldn't use the term, but I will. We need to move beyond that and start thinking about this much more critically. I'm an academic by training, so I love a good definition. So I've been looking at this space and saying, how do we actually define the different elements of this so that we can actually come up with solutions? So firstly, satire and parody is part of this ecosystem. The minute that Sean Spicer retweeted an Onion video about him was the moment we should all have gone home. I mean, when you have Sean Spicer himself not understanding what uh, satire and parody is, we've got a problem. False connection. Actually, there was an incredible uh, keynote recently by the head of IAB talking about the role of advertisers in this space and to recognise that clickbait headlines are also part of this ecosystem. And we have to think about false connections when we're making promises and then not leading through with it. Misleading content, misleading use of information to frame an issue or individual. This has always been an issue with journalism. It's always been very tempting to use statistics in a particular way. There are just examples of poor journalism that we're seeing. But misleading content is something that I think we specifically need to think about. False context, when genuine content is shared with false contextual information. Often we see examples of true information, correct information, but actually the context is, whether that's the headline, it's the caption, um, is used in, in a way that's unhelpful. Imposter content. Those of you who are from mainstream news organisations have probably faced the problem of people using your logos and purporting to be you when we're not. I used to work at UNHCR. Chris Reardon is recently there. We had this issue two years ago when people on Facebook were taking the UNHCR logo and making promises to refugees and saying this is UNHCR content. It absolutely wasn't. Imposter content is part of this ecosystem. Manipulated content, when genuine informational imagery is manipulated to deceive. And I'm going to talk a little bit later about how the technology is getting much more sophisticated. And finally, 100% fabricated content. This is the Macedonian teenagers. These are the people who are creating images entirely from scratch to deceive. Now, for me, this is a spectrum. We need to understand all of these different types of information. And we also need to understand the motivations. But here we go. Satire and parody. You nailed it, period. This is the Sean Spicer moment that made me weep, literally. Misleading connections. Look at that headline. What happened next is amazing. We need to stop doing that if we want people to trust us. 
misleading content. You look at Occupy De Democrats, you look at Eagle is Rising. We have hyper-partisan sites that are part of this space. We can't say it's 100% false, but it's creating the, this emotional content travels at speed on the social networks and is, is creating real issues in terms of the ecosystem. This advert from Donald Trump, his first ad where he used footage purported to show immigrants uh, crossing from Mexico into America, actually uh, refugees and migrants in North Africa crossing into Malia. This was old footage from 2014. Um, imposter content, now this news having real problems because they don't have a website, everything was on social, um, just using uh, this, uh, their branding and, and, and pushing it out on the social channels. And I think we know this too, abc.news.co, people don't look at URLs, so there's a lot of imposter websites that look like a particular brand. And this is an example from the election where two true images, somebody arresting uh, an immigrant and a people standing in line during the primaries in Arizona from March 2016. These two were put together. You can see the retweet numbers here, over 6,000. Uh, this is because nobody is thinking critically about the fact nobody stands in line on their smartphone when somebody is being arrested just behind them. You take two seconds to look at this, but this is a hugely important point. The, if you understand how people's brains work, we're much less critical of visuals because we believe that visuals are an objective truth. So in an age where we are overwhelmed by information and we're relying on heuristics in our brains to make sense of what we're seeing, visuals we're much less likely to be critical of. And whilst we know about Pope endorsing Trump, this was one of the most upsetting images from the election where people were being told, particularly minority communities, that they could stay at home and vote for Hillary via SMS. So these kind of visual fabrications are just as damaging as fake news sites. And I'm going to talk a bit about memes as well. If we think about the power of visuals and how they, they move through our information ecosystem, everyone's like, fake news, how do we stop the Macedonian teenagers? This is a much bigger problem than simply fake news sites. So the motivations, why do people do this? You can imagine a matrix where you have the different types of content and the motivation. So to parody, passion, whether it's about politics, whether it's about climate change, whether it's about golden retrievers. When people are passionate, there's a mm, means justifies the ends type idea. Profit we know well about, and Google and Facebook have made good first steps to, to stop that flow of money. However, there are a number of ad networks. We need to talk about programmatic ads. There's a huge part to this debate that involves revenue and business models, and we need to think about that strategically. Political influence, I think about this is about power. This is about how people are specifically uh, trying to uh, use influence to, to gain power. And propaganda. Uh, I'm going to use that P word. I'm thinking of adding to punk to my spectrum here. I'm not sure whether to punk works globally, but there's something here about the eight-year-old who's really trying to just cause mischief. Uh, so all of this is a working process. I'm trying to work through these things as I go. And, and finally, dissemination methods. People unwittingly sharing false information. So the weekend of the hashtag Muslim ban, uh, there was all sorts of false information being shared, and I'm going to say this by the left, particularly by the left, who for the first time were feeling as worried and scared as the Trump voters in October, and we saw lots of people unwittingly sharing information that they wanted to be true, including this tweet by Jill Biden, Joe Biden's wife. This is a fake Jill Biden account, but everybody wanted it to be true and everybody was pushing it out. Uh, this is a tweet from Fox News talking about the Quebec massacre and saying it was a Moroccan when it actually, it, this was before there had been actual claims it was a unsurprisingly a white man, an angry white man. Uh, but news organizations themselves, and of course this is a Fox example, but many news organizations are making mistakes that are actually unhelpful in this space. 
individuals or loosely connected partisans, passionate individuals or trolls, as we might like to call them, anybody who hasn't read it yet, read the BuzzFeed article about the French election where they got access to essentially a site called Discord, which is like Slack. It's a private chat community where there were 16-year-old Midwestern boys uh, talking about how they were going to influence the French election using Google Forms, Google Docs, the equivalent of a Dropbox folder with memes saying, it doesn't matter that you don't speak French, you can just push this content out into these hashtag streams. When you start looking at the sophistication of 16-year-olds in the Midwest, and in one of the boys said, oh yeah, I come down to dinner after I've been doing this, and my parents say, what have you been doing? Trolling. I mean, the parents have clearly got no idea what's happening. We have to wake up and recognise uh, what's going on. And they are systematic, not a systematic of networks of disinformation, fabricated websites, bot networks, and troll factories. There's been some great work by Lawrence Alexander actually visualising these networks. And if you look at traditional Twitter networks, they look a certain way. If you look at bot networks, they are very sophisticated, and it looks like looking at a virus in a Petri dish. We need to understand and map those networks to understand the types of messaging, who's connected to whom, because this isn't a set of different people. There are many of them are actually connected. And if you look at Google Analytics tags, you look at IP addresses, these networks are connected to one another. And we need to understand that and believe it's much more than Macedonian teenagers who are trying to make a quick buck. So thirdly, visuals, 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 visuals. If you speak to anybody at Facebook, they will tell you people don't click through to the URLs. Yes, you have your referral traffic and you see that and it's good for news organisations. There is some referral traffic there. Most people on Facebook are scrolling past and it's all about the headlines and visuals, which many of you in this room know what that means is the power of the visual can be used in a really destructive way. And this is from research I'm going to talk about in a second about specifically visuals on Breitbart's Facebook page. And so when I talk about memes, people say, oh, okay, such a killjoy. We love a good meme. I love a good meme. But let's talk about the definition of a meme. Meme actually has become unhelpful because we need to understand those that are being used to persuade versus those that are being funny. Let's look at the other side. This is hilarious. This is a meme creator. Feel free to go home and do it. I didn't tell you to do it, but you can go home and very easily create your meme of Donald Trump's latest executive order. It would be funny if it wasn't terrifying and it's just terrifying. But this is on both sides, and it's, oh, it's harmless fun. But what it means is uh, we are in a space where there are on both sides all of this information traveling at speed on social networks where people are scrolling through late at night, not being critical, and that's how we've got into this space. How do we get out of it? But just very quickly, some numbers behind this. This was some research by Pete Brown. Um, if you look at what Breitbart posts on its Facebook page, it's overwhelmingly links. The largest piece of that donut is links. When you look at Breitbart's 100 most shared Facebook posts in 2016, you can see here the majority are photos and videos. So that's what people engage with. They have an emotional connection to visuals, and they're sharing them in large numbers. Now, apologies if you heard the latest This American Life episode, but I just want to play this. This was, they went to one of the Deplora Balls during the inauguration, and this was some of Trump's supporters talking to the reporter. We did it. We memed him into the presidency. You memed him We memed him into president. power. We shitposted our way into the future. It's true. This is true. This is true. Because we, we directed the culture. So, uh, so many things to unpack in just that short clip. We directed the culture. Those of us who are like me who did cultural studies at university, our time is now. 
Secondly, uh, this, they understand the power of memes. They understood what they were doing. I don't think we necessarily understood, but we cannot now not recognize the power of visuals and what they're doing in this ecosystem. So this is this piece I was talking about uh, from BuzzFeed. It really is worth a look. But when you look at their Dropbox of folders where their, their memes exist, where you can basically just pull them out of Dropbox and push them out, they talk about how to identify Twitter accounts in France that will be ones that will be potentially worthy of basically persuading to become part of this network. And they say they can't be too racist. They basically outline how they can do this in a way that uh, won't, won't uh, draw any attention. So... This is an information war. There was a great piece by Dana Board last, Boyd last week about this. We need to stop saying, and to be honest, Reuters put out that great piece last week about we just need to keep doing the journalism that we've always done. Um, and I absolutely agree with that. But we also need to be scared shitless. Uh, this is a really worrying time. Um, and this is a, a really useful explainer for those of you who are like, really, is it that bad? Uh, this was in The Telegraph last week. Russia has long perfected the art of deception and is now marrying this knowledge with modern technology. Uh, talking to people in the know, in 2008, when they won in Georgia, not Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, Georgia, former uh, Soviet Union, they realized they'd won, but they'd lost the propaganda war. And since 2008, they have been learning how they can use their traditional techniques of propaganda using social technology. And they have become very, very smart at this. This is a task force based in Brussels which maps disinformation across Europe. They have a spreadsheet of over 2,500 examples in, in the last 18 months. Now, if you talk to them, they will talk about the sophisticated methods and how different countries are targeted in different ways. So in Scandinavia, that's mostly social networks and bots. If you look at the Czech Republic, it's mostly fake news sites. If you look at the Balkans, they're actually using moral messaging to talk to orthodox priests to push out information from the pulpits. This is a very sophisticated ecosystem that I don't think we have our heads around yet. And some of you may have seen this because um, Newsnight actually featured this on Friday, but this is a piece by Nick Bilton in Hive where he's talking about the sophistication of audio and video technology now, which means in a very short space of time we will be able to manipulate what people say. Because part of the reason we're in the mess that we're in is because of iMovie and Photoshop. <laughs> Uh, and the minute that it got as cheap as it did, and eight-year-olds in Portugal could do this, how do we stop that when there are the social networks to push this out at speed? So um, these talking, talking here about uh, very soon, real TV broadcasts, for instance, or radio interviews will be truly indecipherable. So this was actually a video put out by the researchers about the ability to manipulate somebody in real time. And what you're going to see is an actor. Watch the actor's face and look at George W. Bush. Since our method only uses RGB data for both the source and target actor, we are able to manipulate YouTube videos in real time. Here, we demonstrate our method in a live setup. On the right, a source actor is captured with a standard webcam. The most scary thing about this is we now look at George W. Bush and go, oh, he wasn't that bad. Um, but this is, this is terrifying, and if they, there's also a clip in that interview about audio and how easy it will be to manipulate audio sounds. So what does that mean? It's not simply imposter sites anymore. We're actually talking about people in power uh, that will be shared in a way that nobody knows, is that Trump saying that or is it somebody else? So, importance of understanding our brains and how we react to this type of information. Anybody with a toddler who spent any time in a supermarket knows that that's not a point where you can be rational with that toddler. 
If you look at the way that audiences now are more partisan than ever and more emotional than ever about the things that they care about, we're all essentially in a supermarket wailing. And nobody is, <laughs> we're not able to be rational about the information that we're receiving. Now, I come from a communication background. I could do a really boring lecture about all the communication theories that exist and have existed for many, many years that explain this. And there has been some really good pieces. This is a great one that was in Politico, which basically outlined all the key uh, psychological theories, which means this is why we cannot be critical of visuals. This is why we cannot be critical of information if we agree with it. There's some great research about asking people who are very good at statistics to analyze whether if they use face cream, whether statistics supported the face cream helping a rash or not. You then give those same people data about gun control and people can no longer do the same maths if they're Democrats or Republicans because they desperately want to use the numbers to support their position. We are complex creatures, and we are in a position now where we are unable to use the correct critical skills when we need to, particularly when, in a heartbeat, we're having to make informational decisions about what to trust or not. And Craig Silverman, the godfather of fake news, was actually on a WNYC podcast on the media recently, and he talks about the need to learn emotional skepticism. And I absolutely agree that we should be funding more news literacy programs. I absolutely believe we should be in schools and also with my grandma. I have to say, that Barclays campaign about take your grandma into the branch and teach her how to use digital skills, I'm all for that. We do need to be doing that. We also need to understand how bad we are at this ourselves and recognize that if we have an emotional response to a particular piece of content, we need to stop and breathe. Um, and in the same way as, um, I th you know, I, th I think there's, there, there's an uh, analogy of um, actually if you recognize that your heart rate um, goes up, there should be nudge technology on Facebook that doesn't allow you to retweet immediately. In the same way as somebody says, I know I want seconds, but wait 20 minutes. You're not going to be hungry in 20 minutes. Where is that technology? That's what we need. Um, and as I said over the, over the weekend, seeing that this is 25,000 retweets, this is great. Oh, you may have seen this. This was 2012, I think. Originally, Trump Hotel saying, tell us your favorite travel memory. Quite a lot of people told Trump Hotels their favorite travel memories, including this fake, fake Jill Biden account, which lots and lots of people were retweeting. Um, Simon Sharma, as we know, great historian, uh, unable to scroll back through Twitter to realize that actually, you may have seen this, that Pence had tweeted back in November that he was against a Muslim ban. He hasn't deleted that tweet, but people heard about it and then went back and went, oh, I don't see it. So then we're saying he's deleted it, he's deleted it. And Mitch Ben were like, uh, you mean this one, Simon Sharma? Uh, we have to be aware of this ourselves and every time before we click retweet, check, uh, do we know what we're talking about? And I have to use this one. So has anybody seen the Rogue Poster staff account? I'm just going to say this right now. I don't care if it's being live streamed. I desperately want this to be true. <laughs> desperately want it to be true. Um, and I don't know if it's true or not, but in, if this was on the other side, I'd be like, oh, it's clearly Russian disinformation. I'm like, oh, actually, wouldn't it be great if somebody was tweeted for the West Wing? And the reason I love it so much is because we desperately wanted to get people to care about UNHCR when I worked for UNHCR. Turns out a rogue Twitter account was actually driving quite a lot of traffic to the UNHCR fundraising place last week. So this is a confusing mess that we find ourselves in, but on both sides we need to have emotional skepticism and we need to recognise when we're more likely to be duped on both sides. This isn't, oh, I understand information literacy, it's everybody else who doesn't. So lastly, solutions. We've had a big week, 
Uh, Crosscheck launched a couple of days ago, uh, the brainchild of Jenny Sargent, and this is the idea of we can't let the French elections go without doing something about it. So we really believe that this needs to be a collaborative effort. So we came together with Google News Lab to say how can we do uh, something big with French partners and increasingly international partners who want to be involved in this initiative to do this. <laughs> I'm not going to go into details, but this is only going to work if we collaborate with different technology partners, bringing in different feeds of information, working together to verify, so we're not having a situation where newsrooms are basically duplicating the effort of other newsrooms. We've got no time for that. If we're going to do good journalism, we've got to collaborate on this stuff, which is essentially working out what's true or not, what's been manipulated or not, what's false context, what's false content. Um, we need to work together on that. We need to research this. We need to understand what works and what doesn't. We're seeing a lot of people saying, well, if only the social networks put a green tick and a red cross, that can actually cause boomerang effects with audiences. We can't just assume that we need more labels. We need to research this and understand that. And how do we push it back out to the audience and how do we bring them into this um, ecosystem as well? And they feel part of it. They help us understand and find information that we haven't seen ourselves. So it's a pretty ambitious project. If this works, I hope that it will scale and we'll be, to be able to do more of this. Uh, but we've got to stop just having fake news panels at conferences, although thank you for the invitation. Uh, we've actually got to start doing something. And not everything we do is going to work. We need to fail quickly, as they say in Silicon Valley. And we need to start doing something as a news industry to actually see what we can do. Uh, and if you can see here, we're, we're thinking about new visual languages. So it's not true, false. Going back to those different definitions, we need to make audiences understand what's been manipulated or not. And my last call to action is we need to make it socially unacceptable to share poor content. In the same way as drink driving is socially unacceptable, we need to do the same for false information. And finally, we need to talk to each other about how to stop Crazy Uncle Bob sharing this content. How many of you has a Crazy Uncle Bob on Facebook? <laughs> or Crazy Uncle Bob tends to be on email. Um, but we need to know how to talk. So lastly, here are some slides from um, somebody, a friend of a friend, had a friend post the Infowars piece about three million lost votes. And at the bottom, oh, I should have crossed that out. His name's Nate Miller. Uh, do you even care if the things you post are true or not? And this guy says, yep. They get into this huge back and forth where they just, like, you know, my friend shares PolitiFact. I don't trust PolitiFact. I've got my own sources. How can you say the New York Times is trustworthy? They said that Hillary was going to win and she didn't. Why should I trust the New York Times? Back and forth, 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 back and forth. At the end. Anyway, look forward to that beer one of these days. So how do we actually learn best practices for having conversations with each other? So much of this is peer-to-peer. -peer. So when people say, researchers say, the impact of fake news is not as big as we worried about, somebody would have had to have seen 39 fake news articles for it to sway their decision. We are not measuring when somebody comes down from upstairs and says, I just read on Facebook that Hillary Clinton is a paedophile. Really? The person who's telling you that is your trusted friend or your family member. That is where persuasion happens. So we need to stop just thinking about online separately. It's about online and offline. It's about understanding peer-to-peer. -peer. It's about helping one another navigate this ecosystem. It's the platforms playing a huge role in this. It's about research, 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 and it's about doing. So go and read a bunch of stuff, become scared shitless, and join the campaign because we're in an information war. And you can read our live blogs and articles on www.newsrewired.com, which detail all of the other sessions that took place last week. For more podcasts from journalism.co.uk, please visit our website.